Today's reading comes from 1 Kings chapter 21, verses 1 through 21. Later, the following events took place. Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of King Ahab of Samaria. And Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard so that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it is near my house. I will give you a better vineyard for it, or if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you my ancestral inheritance. Ahab went home resentful and sullen because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he had said, I will not give you my ancestral inheritance. He lay down on his bed, turned away his face, and would not eat. His wife, Jezebel, came to him and said, Why are you so depressed that you will not eat? He said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth, the Jezreelite, and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else, if you prefer, I will give you another vineyard for it. But he answered, I will not give, it. I will not give you my vineyard. His wife, Jezebel, said to him, Do you now govern Israel? Get up, eat some food, and be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal. She sent the letters to the elders and the nobles who lived with Naboth in his city. She wrote in the letters, Proclaim a fast and seat Naboth at the head of the assembly. Seat two scoundrels opposite him and have them bring a charge against him, saying, You have cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. The men of his city, the elders and the nobles who lived in his city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them. Just as it was written in, in the letters that she had sent to them, they proclaimed a fast and seated Naboth at the head of the assembly. The two scoundrels came in and sat opposite him, and the scoundrels brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned, he is dead. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Go, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive but dead. As soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab sent, set out to go down to the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, to take possession of it. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah and the Tishbite, saying, Go down to meet King Ahab of Israel, who rules in Samaria. He is now in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. You shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? You shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, In the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, dogs will also lick up your blood. Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? He answered, I have found you, because you have, sold you, you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. I will bring disaster on you. I will consume you, and I will cut you off from Ahab. Cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free, in Israel. The word of the Lord. that thing there. 
ugly story about, I don't know, bad people, pouty, impotent, bitchy, vengeful, greedy, murderous, infantile, unjust people. The greedy king and queen want land, so they enlist the Texas, actually, two bad people, two scoundrels. And these scoundrels bring false charges against Naboth, whose vineyard the king Ahab wants, in some sort of pressing way so that he can grow vegetables. And then this really bad mob, that mob comes and takes Naboth out to stone him to death for cursing God and king. I guess they don't believe in free speech. So the mob pelts him with stones until he's bloodied and dead. And then Elijah, who is the prophet of God, but who has actually just wiped the blood off his hands from the 450 prophets of Baal he murdered in a rampage two chapters earlier, pronounces judgment on Ahab and Jezebel, saying that one will have his blood licked up by the dogs and the other will be eaten by dogs in revenge for their bad behavior. What a morass of bad. Worse than Quentin Tarantino. On almost every level, on the surface and the words and the spaces between the words, what's said and unsaid, the trail, the traces, the imprint, the air, it's a lot of badness. And there's a way that I sort of imagine that the authors of this particular portion of scripture were a little bad, even. Because they have this very particular agenda. And they pursue that agenda with a vengeance. You know, a lot of the Bible is sort of jagged, and there's all these rifts and fissures. There's things pasted together with obvious seams. You can see the seams as if it was important to preserve all of these voices. I like that about scripture a lot. All these varied and layered voices that you can see traces of. But in this particular part of scripture, it's not really like that. The pieces and the layers have all been smoothed and subsumed under a single point of view. I want to say fascist, but I don't think I should. But it's so black and white sometimes that it reads, on the surface anyway, like a simplistic morality tale. The evil bad queen versus the good guys. The evil bad gods of the Canaanites versus the God of Israel. It's really all quite formulaic. I mean, like the writers actually repeat formulas in 1 Kings over and over again, formulas. This king did what was pleasing in the sight of the Lord. This king didn't do what was pleasing in the sight of the Lord. And that line is repeated 800,000 times. And what was pleasing in the sight of the Lord meant one single thing. Did the king allow the people to burn incense to their idols? Did the king tolerate idolatry or not? From a certain point of view... This all might come across as a little bit, I want to say, fascist, but I'm not sure I should. I mean, I keep imagining the people, not the kings. The people. All these people living out in the mountains, all these rural sheep farmers, 
farmers and goat herders and moms with their babies who all live out in the countryside. They don't read. They've never gone to school. They work their garden. They tend their sheep. And sometimes they pray to the rain god for rain. Maybe they even have some little shrine in their backyard where they practice this this sort of piety. They've always practiced. A sort of religion that almost all people everywhere had ever practiced. That's just sort of comfortable with various gods. And the kings and kings are judged bad or good by, like, whether they sent the purity police out into the countryside to make sure that these simple folk were not burning the incense. Whether or not they sent the purifiers into these people's backyards to smash up their little shrines, to enforce the proper religion. And you have to think about it. In this point in history, there was really no such thing as monotheism. And the people who wrote Kings mean to revise the history to show that this, that there was no such thing as monotheism, was precisely why everything bad that ever happened to Israel happened. It was because the people worshipped other gods. And of course they did. Monotheism hasn't, hadn't been conceived of. And if you look at our scriptures, there are traces of these other gods, many various images of God all over the Bible, even the names used to speak of God. Elohim is a popular one. It has a plural ending, like more than one. El Shaddai is a popular one. It means breast, like very female. Gender and number were relatively unimportant in the inception of the faith of Israel. There wasn't just one male God above all the others. Yahweh had a female consort, actually, known as the Queen of Heaven. She was part of what the people of Israel had come to worship. And you can see her traces all over the text. I think that we might have liked her if we had a chance to know her. She's known variously as Asherah, Tanit, the lioness, the womb, a mother sheep, the mother, the life force, also sometimes as the face of Baal. But if archaeological evidence has shown anything that's true about this time, it's that she was just a normal part of the daily people's piety, faith. She was just a normal part of their routine practice. Archaeologists have not found evidence of Solomon's temple or evidence of almost anything else recorded in Deuteronomist history, but they found tons of these little Asherah figures buried in the dirt, amidst the rubble of kitchens and bedrooms and playgrounds and shrines, all over what was Israel. But the agenda of the people who wrote down these stories was in great part to rid the faith of the traces of this female mother goddess. They were trying to solidify monotheism, by getting rid of the queen. But I just wonder if there might have been another way. But these guys knew how to do their job well. 
tell a story about the most evil queen, the epitome of evil, a powerful woman, not the consort, but the enemy of God. Jezebel, the cause of all destruction and failure, everything bad that happened to the nation, it's because of her. Jezebel, the evil goddess queen. The story they told was remarkably successful. Like, 3,000 years later, doesn't everyone still know what Jezebel means? I mean, hardly anyone remembers Asherah. Ahab, Jezebel's husband, may have been bad, but no one really remembers him. Elijah the prophet murdered a lot of people, but he's remembered mostly as good. The Deuteronomistic writers, the authors, maybe a very small contingent of people are aware of the possibility of their misdeeds. But Jezebel, she's like the icon of evil. There's an entry in the dictionary. Jezebel, a scheming, wicked woman. I mean, imagine your name in the dictionary. And then the definition, evil person. She's an icon of badness. She still shows up in literature and comic books and video games and music. Edith Piaf, Elvis Presley, Boys to Men, Iron and Wine, the Reverend Horton Heat all wrote songs about Jezebel. In the computer game Vampire the Masquerade, Jezebel is a seductress vampiress that deliberately spreads a dangerous disease. She shows up all over culture. Sometimes she shows up as Jezzy Bell, or sometimes she's known as Jazzy Bell. In a Twilight Zone episode, it was just Just Bell. She's a sexually promiscuous character, a seductive vampire, a kidnapper. Jezebel was the name of an unreflected critical assembly of plutonium used in neutronics experiments at Los Alamos. I don't know what that means, but I think it's bad. <laughs> and there seems to be a proliferation of lingerie lines that bear her name. Like Jezebel, Wild Thing, Unlined Bra, Animal Prince Trimmed with Lace. There is a whole section in the Jim Crow Museum of Racist Memorabilia devoted to Jezebel images. Ashtrays postcards, fishing lures, drinking glasses, twizzle sticks, with naked black women posed as temptress. One very popular item of Jezebel memorabilia, a metal nutcracker, circa 1930s. It's a topless black woman. The nut is placed under her skirt and crushed. This seems to me like it might unfortunately be an accurate summary of some sort of driving fear that has unfortunately shaped not only the biblical witness, but most of history. Jezebel, the nutcracker. The story in the Bible doesn't actually ever say anything about Jezebel's sexual behavior. She seems in the stories to actually be a very loyal wife. It's just that Jehu the good king who kills her, 
calls her a whore and a witch right before he tramples her with his horses, spraying her blood all over. And somehow the label that he gives her seems to have taken. The synonym for Jezebel in the dictionary is slut, tramp, trollop, wench, whore. Her badness in the Bible wasn't related at all to anything sexual, but it is somehow the badness that has shaped her image. The writers in the Bible are utterly hostile to Jezebel. She becomes an opportunity to teach a moral lesson about the evil outcomes of idolatry. The evil outcomes of worshiping the mother goddess, the face of Baal. She's a foreigner. She seems to control her husband. He gets much of a lesser sentence than she. He dies in battle, then his blood is looked at by dogs. Jezebel becomes dog food. I'm not always happy with the way the scripture portrays powerful women. Elijah says, in the place where dogs lick the blood of Naboth, the dogs will eat Jezebel. And so they do. The story bloodily goes on. Jehu is anointed king by the prophet of God with these words of the Lord. So that I may avenge on Jezebel the blood of my servant and priest and the dogs will eat her, etc. I mean, what horrible words for an anointing. Vengeance. Dogs eating people. But so after the anointed Jehu jumps in his chariot to head to Jezreel where Jezebel's son and grandsons are and they see Jehu coming and they ride out to greet him and they see sort of, do you come in peace? And he answers, what peace can there be so long as the whore and the witch, your mother, is alive? And he assassinates both of them. And then Jehu goes to get Jezebel and she calls through the window, is it peace? And Jehu says, Who's on my side? And he yells at some eunuchs who are with Jezebel, and he says, throw her down. And so they throw her out of the window, and the text says some of her blood spattered on the wall and on the horses. And after trampling Jezebel with the horses, Jehu, the good king, goes in for a bite to eat. And then after he's had lunch, he gives orders for this cursed woman to be buried, but it's too late. The dogs have already devoured her body. Except, the text says, for her skull, her feet, and the palms of her hands. And the bloodbath has only begun. Jehu, the good king, has 70 sons of Ahab beheaded, slays 42 visiting relatives. Then Jehu has all the prophets and all the priests and all the worshipers of Asherah assemble at her temple. He says to honor her. And then when everyone's in the temple, he has everyone slain. And the temple is demolished, making it a latrine to this day, the text says. It's really one of the more chillingly brutal scenes in the entire scripture. The female queen with the power in the castle who worships the female deity with the power in the temple becomes dog food and dung, and Asherah's temple becomes a latrine. I think it's a bit much, a little over the top. 
people die in the writing of the Deuteronomist than practically any place in the Bible. Slaughter all the inhabitants of Canaan, their God says. Slaughter everything that breathes. Their point was to wipe out idolatry, and they write the bloodiest history in service to their concept of God. The worst kind of idolatry. So I don't know, I'm just wondering, could there be some other possible way to tell this story? Or maybe we aren't really capable of it another way. Maybe humanity will always be locked into this thing where the good people are against the bad people. I mean, the people who wrote these stories, they probably just wanted what they believed was best for the people. And yet if they were seeking morality and goodness and justice and righteousness, their story becomes an absolute parody. The good people end up looking terrible, just horrible. Not good and righteous and true. I mean, you can write the word good. You can say the good king. You can say good over and over. You can claim it and you can even believe it and you can sing it over and over, the home of the free and the land of the brave. But if it was built on the blood of Indians and on the backs of the slaves, how is it true? Good in what way? Maybe stories about good guys and bad guys are never true. It is never that simple. The search for purity ends up leading to violence. Maybe that's an important part of what these texts end up revealing. Trying to clean things up, tidy up the faith, draw the lines, maybe that's not the best thing to do. say that I like that the Bible keeps on going, that the story keeps on unfolding. A lot of time passes, a lot of things happen, and then eventually, so the story goes, God becomes incarnate in the world as a human being. Crazy. Talk about going in a different direction than one that seeks purity. God comes into the world as a mammal. God becomes incarnate in the world through, this is so crazy and beautiful to me, the womb of the mother. The story of God incarnate begins with the beloved mother. I, of course, am not the one making this stuff up. The mother becomes the temple out of which God emerges clothed in flesh. It seems like the writers of Kings, the purists, would be going absolutely crazy. They did everything they could to get the mother out of the temple, to rid the faith of her presence, and here she is. This seems like some kind of grace to me. The search for purity leads to violence. And there is some weird sort of energy that comes from naming some people bad, from drawing lines and forming sides. But God keeps coming into the world in the most surprising, but graciously gentle sorts of ways. 
condemning no one or nothing. Not to avenge, but taking up everything in love. Giving birth to grace upon grace upon grace. 